0: Welcome to Inside the Rope, the podcast where we speak to the leading minds in wealth management. I'm your host, David Clark, and today I'm speaking with Craig Colley, Portfolio Manager and Sector Specialist on Healthcare for Regal Funds Management. Many of our listeners will be familiar with Regal, as we've had Phil King, their founder, on the podcast a couple of times, and they'll be familiar with the very strong growth returns that they've produced. In this episode, we've got Craig on to talk about the healthcare sector that he invests in as a medical doctor, the type of capability and advantage he brings to the table for Regal. And we also, at the back end of the conversation, talk about the vaccine process uh, for COVID-19 and what that is likely to look like and a potential rollout and some of the players involved in that. Please remember that this podcast isn't advice, and we encourage listeners to listen to the disclaimer at the end of the podcast and to seek any financial advice prior to making investments. Please remember to keep your feedback coming. I really enjoy receiving that. You can reach me at david.clark at codacapital.com. Enjoy the podcast. Great. Welcome to Inside the Road. Thanks, David. Lovely to be here. Craig, perhaps we could kick off the listeners, and maybe you can tell us in your own words, who is Craig Colley? Sure.
1: So um, I started my career as a medical doctor, trained in New Zealand, worked in uh, New Zealand, Australia, and the UK, uh, practiced for five years, mainly in emergency medicine, uh, which is a great place to work, good teamwork, and um, I think the most fun place because you're often making the diagnosis, which is the detective work, which is, I think, the fun part of practicing medicine. Uh, After five years, I went to uh, business school for a year in Cambridge, uh, then worked at Boston Consulting Group. it's a global consulting company uh, focused mainly on healthcare and financial services. I did that for about four or five years, then went to Macquarie, where I was head of healthcare sales side research here in uh, Sydney, uh, before joining Regal about five years ago.
0: So why does a medical doctor or someone in the world of Medicine, where it's all associated with helping people, want to be in finance.
1: It's uh, a good question. I get it. I get it a lot. You, you think I should have a uh, a, a very well defined answer that rolls off the tongue? But um, listen, I think medicine's great. It's um, it's a profession I still have a very high affinity for. I'm actually still have uh, full registration, and um, you know have a lot of, uh, I guess, loyalty to the profession. Um, for me, though. Um, I think, you know, I gravitated towards a profession where there's a little bit more scope for thinking outside of the box, um, seeing things differently, which other people don't see, uh, and coming up with, I guess, um, uh, innovative solutions or thinking a little bit outside the box. Um, Medicine's fantastic, but um, for good reason. I think a lot of the decision-making in medicine is, is quite conformist. If you go to the doctor and you're sick, you want to get the same answer regardless of which doctor you go to. You don't want doctors cutting corners. You want doctors following process and procedure, and that's excellent for patients. Uh, but for me, where I like uh, yeah, things a little bit different, um, uh, I've gravitated to, to, I guess, a more commercial role within, uh, within
0: medicine. Now, let's remind our listeners about who is Regal. Um, how would you describe Regal to our listeners? Uh, yeah, uh, t-
1: try and do that quickly. Um, Regal is um, a leading alternative manager in Australia, Uh, The DNA of Regal is long, short investing. Um, I think we're one of the largest uh, fundamental long, short alternative managers in Australia. Uh, Probably four or five um, products right now, an absolute return product, which was launched in 2000, Market Neutral launched a few years later, There's a small companies fund, which has been extremely successful, Uh, and most recently an emerging company slash pre-IPO fund, and I think they're up to version four of that fund right now. Um, Last year, uh, we launched an LIC, which is actually a combination of most of the regal strategies. Uh, And then just last month, um, we're in the process of launching uh, an event-driven global strategy. So I guess a a bunch of different strategies, but the core DNA is alternative investing and long short
0: investing. And our listeners will actually be very... Uh, or should be, I hope, um, familiar with Phil King, who uh, is one of the founders and has been on the podcast twice and yeah, has quite the following in markets. Uh, obviously, his name trends very well. We, we can see. Um, so tell us a little bit about your role, Craig, if you could, at Regal and what you do.
1: Sure. Um, so I manage a uh, currently a sleeve of our market neutral strategy, uh, it's long, short global healthcare. Uh, we've just announced a few days ago that I'll also be managing a sleeve of our listed investment trust. Uh, so collectively, the strategies will manage around uh, 120 million Australian dollars. Um, that's long, short, so it means we can have up to $240 million exposure. We can manage, um, excuse me, we can invest in uh, healthcare companies globally uh, but our focus is really Asia. We can, we can get into that in a minute but we see the greatest opportunities in Asia and, and obviously that's where we're closest to the companies and to uh, brokers and investors and industry
0: contacts. So define the universe and the type of things what was global healthcare, market. What, what, yeah. what does that mean? Are we talking about retirement homes or are we talking about biotech?
1: Another good question. Healthcare, despite being a single sector, is incredibly diverse So, you know, we look at companies, we look at everything within healthcare. So we look at companies which are, I guess, biotechs, pre-revenue, attempting to commercialize pharmaceuticals Uh, on one end, also medical devices, which are typically engineering products, if you like, but also um, directed at either diagnosing or treating illnesses. Uh, Then hospitals, lab providers, uh, even health insurers. Um, And actually my time at Regal, I spent a lot of time looking at retirement, um, aged care and retirement. So we don't have many active positions in that space right now. But um, yeah, there's an enormous breadth of companies and we invest globally, mainly because uh, healthcare is really a a global industry. Uh, If you're a small biotech in Australia trying to commercialise a treatment for say Alzheimer's disease, you're competing against every big pharma globally. So um, it makes sense for us to look globally. Although as I touched on, we do focus on Asia. Probably 80% of our positions are in Asia. Uh, And that's because as I said, um, that's the market we're closest to, we can meet the companies more often, we can talk to the brokers and get a feel for positioning across the different markets in Asia. But maybe most interestingly, that's where we think the biggest mispricing is. So the US healthcare is the second biggest sector behind tech, I think it's 15% of the market. In Europe, healthcare is actually the number one sector in the market. Uh, Again, it's about 15% of the market. But across Asia, healthcare is actually relatively emerging. Uh, I think in Japan, it's the number six sector. But outside of Japan, uh, Hong Kong, Malaysia, Thailand, um, India, um, the healthcare is actually a relatively small sector. So what that means is that um, both sell side and buy side typically don't dedicate a huge amount of resources to the sector. And you don't tend to have technically trained experts analysing these relatively technical companies. So that means that a generalist investor is typically set in the price in the short to medium term. So that means greater um, mispricing and if you're um, an investor like us,
0: um, more mispricing is great. So you're bringing technical capability to uh, a fight against people who are bringing financial analytics and looking at balance sheets where they may not know the medical technical capability underneath. That's right. So
1: uh, as we touched on earlier, I'm medically trained. Um, Dilshan Senavaratna, uh, who works alongside me very closely, is another medical doctor. Um, so what we do day in, day out is looking at um, technologies which are in development. So typically drugs or medical devices, reading the clinical data or the data which has been published from that company, making judgments about the probability of success uh, in future registrational trials for those technologies, looking at where competitors are and how their studies and technologies compare, uh, and looking at the unmet medical need. And uh, as both of us have worked in medicine and had experience making decisions as doctors, um, you know we think we're relatively well placed to, to make those decisions. And as you touch on, um, in Asia, there's not a lot of technically trained investors making those decisions. Uh, the US and, and Europe is different. Even if you're a generalist fund in the US, healthcare is such a big sector that you need to have someone on your team who knows how to read clinical data. And the same in Europe, but in Asia, it's relatively uncommon, uh, again, which means greater mispricing. So that, that's good for us.
0: So Craig, give us an example of something that has worked well and something that has not worked so well and maybe what you've learned out of that. And what I'm thinking out of this is maybe we can give people a bit of a flavour for the process that you have and the type of things you're looking at and also give them a good understanding of the, the process that you go through in order to, to take a position. Sure, so there's a lot
1: there. Let's try and think of um, something which helps, I guess, explain our process. One, one which comes to mind is a company called Momenta. Uh, it's a US-listed pre-revenue biotech. Um, and the reason I'm talking about it is because just last week, I think, or well, the week before, the company was acquired by uh, Johnson & Johnson for, I think, $6.5 billion. I think it was about a 70% premium to the to the stock price uh, the week beforehand. Um, yeah, and that's an interesting story, I think. It's, um, uh, I guess, you know, we first started investing in this company about two years ago. Um, they're in a partnership with CSL for one of their products. Um, CSL, a global plasma protein manufacturer, that's an industry we know really well. Uh, so, my time at my quarry, I, I covered CSL for five years. Uh, and obviously, it's, it's a very large company in the the Australian index. Um, so, we've looked at it very closely for the last five years at Regal. Uh, and my mentor was um, commercializing or tend to commercialize. Um, a synthetic form of IVIG. IVIG, without getting into too much detail, um, is roughly 40 or 50% of CSL's revenue. I think the global sales of this product are north of $10 billion. Uh, these guys would have some great science in terms of creating a synthetic version. Currently, CSL, in order to create this product, needs to collect plasma from donors. Uh, then they need to refine that plasma, <clears throat> purify it, package it, and sell it. Memento had products which were uh, greatly, um, uh, I guess make uh, a lot more efficient that manufacturing process and also make a product which was a lot more potent. So knowing that space really well, um, we, I guess at a relatively early stage, recognized the commercial impact of the substitute product, or both products which Memento was manufacturing. Um, And uh, so that, sort of perked our interest. Um, Then we did a huge amount of due diligence on the science. Uh, We spoke to management um, uh, several times to to better understand the science and formed a view that the market was not pricing in the upside potential for these compounds. Also, the other angle on the stock was, given the massive disruption it could cause to a well-established industry, um, at the time it was only one or $2 billion market cap, we thought there was a very high chance it would be taken over. So we thought probably CSL or a Griffles or a Takeda might take it out, but it so transpired that Johnson & Johnson took it out. But that was the core of our thesis. We rode some ups and downs in the stock, um, held it for two years. And then, yeah, as I said, just two weeks ago, it was, it was taken over. So that was a, that was a nice... Um, that was a good win. That's right. We yeah. like those. <laughs>
0: that's right. That's right. So that, that, was, uh, that was a nice story. So, in turning that on the other side, what is an example of where something hasn't worked so well uh, and step, step us through that? Yeah, so
1: um, I think short selling in this environment has been tough. Um, so, as I touched on earlier, often in the short to medium term in this part of the world and Australia is no exception, um, the incremental buyer of some of these biotechs um, is often a generalist investor um and you know you think about the context of small caps in australia most small cap teams and the average team size in australia is probably 2 or 3 investors on the institutional side uh and these people are covering 2 or 300 stocks so their ability to really sort of understand the science get into the weeds um for some of these emerging biotech companies is relatively limited just in terms of time constraints and on top of that there's not many who have technical training and can read clinical data so um the mispricing I now speaking about earlier is pretty common in Australian emerging biotechs. So there's a couple which we you know, I won't name today, but you know we've been short um, earlier this year. Um, and with the market, especially in the last few months, um, the direction it's been heading, the velocity it's been heading, um, you know these stocks have have um, outperformed we- as, as as much as anything.
0: You can actually on the short side where you're looking to make a profit out of the stock going down or going to zero basically because you think the science isn't right and the, the future of the business isn't nearly as good as the markets making out. You can actually be right but the market can be such uh, that you get burnt and lose a lot of money. I think John Hempton who's a very well known uh, manager of shorts who's been on the show and I think probably one of his most successful being valiant pharmaceuticals right in this space. You know, it took a long, long time for that to play out, um, and you know there were big Bill Aikman on one side, and him and some others. It's a, you know, there's a whole series, well, a whole episode of Dirty Money on Netflix mm. devoted to the whole topic. Uh, but you can get that wrong in that short side. So that's how do you manage that short side? Then do you take lots of very little positions? Do you have stop losses? Uh, it seems to me an area where, if you might be right. But the market just takes too long for that to be flushed out. There's not a catalyst. But equally so, if you're wrong on the long side, i.e. you bought that company before and CSL or someone didn't want to pay it out and their technology was no good, that, that problem goes away for you because when you come back tomorrow, it's only half what it was yesterday mm-hmm. in your portfolio. On the short side, you're, you're, you're shorting something at $100 and all of a sudden it's run up to $1,000. The people have been shorting Tesla. Mm that becomes a bigger problem so how do you manage you know that that in, in the portfolios
1: yeah so I guess uh, the short answer is it's difficult especially times like now where the market's going up and the riskier stocks are going up the most so um, it's tough you know but just to rewind a little bit you're right I mean um, mispricing of these of on the short side is something we can take advantage of um, and it's pretty common here it's actually, very easy to spot mispricing where stocks are overvalued. Um, the challenge, as you point out, is that in markets like now where everything goes up, the risky assets got faster, uh, momentum's a really strong indicator right now. Um, and on top of that, as you say, if, if a short goes against you, your exposure increases as well. So I think, you know, two or three things which we try and do. The first is we really try and identify a catalyst. Um, just because something's mispriced, um, doesn't mean the market's going to wake up tomorrow and realize it's, it's, it's mispriced and the stock's going to form the right value. So um, we really look for a catalyst for, for our short ideas. That's the first thing I'll say. The second thing I'll say is, is that um, pride can get in your way. So um, sometimes you need to be pragmatic um, and you need to understand that whilst you might be right in the long term, um, in the short term, sometimes you need to risk manage um, your portfolio exposure and actually, I guess, um, cut your losses and exit that position or at least reduce the exposure until you can identify a better catalyst. Yeah. And I guess lastly, um, you know, and this probably uh, applies to our longs as well, is that you need to be honest with yourself and you need to be honest about why you t- entered the position in the first place. And again, I guess, don't be too pr- uh, proud to admit that you're wrong and that it may be your initial analysis was incorrect.
0: So going back to that example you gave of the American company that has been has, has sold out to Johnson & Johnson, how did that come across your radar or how did you become aware of that? So uh, the company um, first
1: came across my radar when CSL invested um, in one of their products. So, um, that was the first time I heard about the company. Didn't know much about it. Um, and then about two years ago, management did a uh, roadshow. I think they were here meeting with CSL. And uh, one of the local brokers organized a, um, uh, some meetings with um, buy side investors. So that's when we really, I guess, um, looked under the hood of the company, spoke in depth with the chief medical officer as well as the CEO and the CFO and understood, I guess, um, the strength of their science. Um, roughly the same time, there's another company called Arginx, which was also, um, c- trying to commercialize a synthetic IVIG molecule. So, um, we're doing quite a bit of work in the space at the time. Um, and, you know, IVIG being CSL's core product, uh, it's obviously hugely important. So it's a space that we like to keep on top of, um, I guess, you know, regardless of what's happening. So, yeah, that's, that's, that's a bit of the, the background there.
0: Great. Okay healthcare is generally seen as uh, a sector with a lot of tailwinds, that you've got a lot of technology uh, being introduced and changed, and an ageing population and wealthier populations. Um, and, you know, it, it would seem to make sense that if there's a cure to cancer, that people are going to pay for that cure, and therefore there's a whole heap of tailwinds in healthcare, generally speaking. How would you frame... Investors to look at healthcare of where we are in the market now. So, looking forward, um, is it still an advent, advantageous sector of the market with tailwinds, or is it more problematic? Yeah, it's you know, that's it, a it's a good question, and, and
1: um, I'll try and answer it as best I can. In some ways, I mightn't be the right person to ask because I invest only in healthcare. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, I don't spend a huge amount of time looking at, I guess, the market as a whole and comparing sector, I guess, exposure or relative strength. Um, But a few things I can say is that, um, you know, there are, as you say, some really favourable tailwinds for healthcare. Uh, If you look globally, healthcare um, spend uh, rises as the wealth of a country rises. So if you plot on one axis the GDP per capita of a country... Uh, and then on the other axis, you plot the proportion of the GDP that they dedicate to healthcare. That's actually an exponential relationship. So, in other words, um, most Western countries spend around, roughly, let's say, ten percent of GDP on healthcare. But if you go down to poorer countries, they'll only spend two or three percent of healthcare of GDP on healthcare. So, as these countries, um, and I'm thinking mostly about Asia, because that's a lot, I guess, a lot of the, the fast growth companies uh, globally are in Asia as these companies, countries get wealthier, <clears throat> the proportion of their wealth that they spend on healthcare increases. So it means that healthcare tends to grow to multiple GDP. Uh, and if you look at the healthcare spend across most of these Asian countries, it's growing at seven, eight, nine percent. So, you know, these are, you know, very strong tailwinds. And the last point I'll make is that many of these countries are still, their GDP is still well south of developed countries. So these are tailwinds are strong, point one, and point two is that they've got a long way to run. So that's another reason why we like Asia in terms of investing. Um, but overall, the space, you know, certainly has some tailwinds. And then I think, you know, the, the COVID um, pandemic has, I think, reminded everyone of the importance of healthcare and the importance of health. Um, so I think, you know, this crisis will have lasting changes. And I think one of those changes is going to be, you know, even greater focus on healthcare.
0: Well, that's a great segue uh, to talk a little bit about um, the COVID-19 pandemic uh, that the world is currently in the grips of. Uh, I'd be very interested in your thoughts as to when you think there might be a vaccine um, and maybe talk about the structure and the economics and, and who some of the major players are in developing that and how that's coming about.
1: Yeah, so that's obviously very topical, David. Um, listen, I think, you know, I'll make a few comments about that. The first is that um, of the sort of big five or six players which have received um, the, you know, a lot of the funding from the US. I think all of the vaccines look pretty good. Uh, all of the data is generating neutralizing antibodies as well as T cell response. Um, and in most instances, the neutralizing antibody titers are greater than what you see in people who have become infected. So that's a sign that it's generating immunity. Um, but in saying that, the studies are still relatively early, Um, but because we've got so many, I think it's highly likely that at least one, if not several of these vaccines, are going to be proved to be effective. So uh, in terms of getting a vaccine, um, I think it's um, very likely. I think uh, that data will probably come out towards the end of this year. Um, In terms of picking a winner, I think it becomes pretty tough. Um, It's always hard to compare studies Um, from different entities, and most of the early studies have, you know, I guess different populations, use different animals, use different viral doses, use different vaccine doses. So trying to compare the vaccines at this stage I think is very difficult. We're not playing the vaccine um, stocks specifically for that reason. Um, And I think the other variable which is going to be really important to watch is um, how... uh, effective these vaccines are. So are 100% of people who get the vaccine going to be um, immune from the virus or are 90 or 80 or only 50? And the implications to our economy are enormous. Um, and, uh, you know, the other, I guess, variable is how often or how long is the immunity going to last? So how frequently will we need to have vaccine boosters or, you know, regular vaccines on a yearly basis? Those last two questions, I think, are very difficult to answer at this early stage. Um, But I think with a lot of confidence, what we can say is it's highly likely we'll get some vaccine. And I think the vaccine efficacy, you know, given how economically damaging the lockdowns have been, um, I think the vaccine efficacy, you know, if it's 50 or 60%, I think what we'll see is we're still going to see widespread uh, adoption and widespread opening up and reduction of the restrictions, um, albeit um, with that sort of efficacy levels, you know, the, the disruption from the virus w- will, you know, last a bit longer than it would otherwise.
0: And what's your best guess around timing? It seems that people seem to think 2021, uh, before the end of 2021, seems to be reasonable. Would you concur with that? Or do you think we might see something in front of that? Yes, yeah, so in terms of the
1: vaccine, I think, uh, I think we'll see data probably this year. I think we'll see probably approvals towards the end of the year. Um, and then, you know, through 2021, we'll see the rollout. Um, I think, um, you know, there's, there's some challenges there in terms of the rollout. You know, I think globally, the vaccine industry manufactures maybe two or 300 million glass vials, for example, but there's 6 billion people in the world. So, Mm -hmm. you know, we need to ramp up production, you know, of things like glass vials, needles, alcohol swabs. So the, the rollout, I think is going to be, you know, perhaps a little bit, Slower than what everyone would hope, and it could be a little bit frustrating. And I think the other variable, which, you know, I don't know if many people are thinking about this right now, is whether or not people are going to put their hand up and get the vaccine immediately. Well, this is a good
0: point. I think in Australia, anyway, the sort of anti-vaxxer movement has largely been seen as the same people with the tinfoil hats protesting that Bill Gates is taking control of us all with 5G towers. Uh, However, I think with the you know the current debate that's starting to emerge about you know whether this vaccine may be compulsory or not, you're starting to see some pretty well educated people say, "Well, hold it, hold on a second. Um, you know, th- this is all pretty quick. You know, uh, a virus like HIV/AIDS um, still doesn't mm. have a cure, and we're talking about having um, a vaccine for 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 this virus in you know really really." world record quick time for a whole number of reasons, but, well, w- what are the long-term effects of this, and what are, for instance, if somebody's on XYZ medication, how does it interplay with that, et cetera, et cetera? How do you think that is going to come out? It, you know, is this something that you'd give to your children? Mm.
1: This is a great point. Um, you know, I saw a survey yesterday which suggested that 90% of Australians would get the vaccine, so that's great, and... and um, but the question becomes how quickly, and a broker, Evercore ISI, which we use in the US, they did an excellent survey, I think more than a thousand people, and they actually had a similar number. So 90% of people say, well, I'll get the vaccine. But what they also asked is, when will you get the vaccine? And of those 90% of people who put their hand up and said, yes, I'll get it, um, only 30% said that they'd get it immediately. 40% that said that they'd like to wait six months, and the other 30% said they'd like to wait at least 12 months. Now, these are educated people who are industry people, either in investment community or also work in um, industry and in, in pharma or biotech. So, um, as you point out, it's, it's not just, um, you know, the anti-vaxxers who are going to be a little bit hesitant. And the thing, you know, one thing which is not helping here is that the credibility of the FDA, for example, um, is starting to come under question. So, um, uh, Donald Trump... Um, was, you know, I guess a big fan of uh, hydroxychloroquine. And that, you know, some people believe that led to the FTA uh, prematurely approving that product. I think s- since that approval, um, better evidence has emerged that the, the product is, is um, highly questionable. It might even be um, damaging
0: to patients. So I think the, that so approval... just because the FDA approves it doesn't mean that it's actually a good thing.
1: Well, that's right. So the FDA's done a U turn on that. And then just two weeks ago, uh, under pressure from Donald Trump, they had a, a joint press conference. They approved the use of convalescent plasma. Now, you know, the data from that is relatively questionable. You've had a lot of good industry people uh, put their hand up and say that this is also premature. So, um, you know, it's not just Russia. And China, who are pre- prematurely approving these medicines and the public's
0: going to be sceptical, we're actually seeing something similar in the US. Well, I and think Moderna, who's probably, you know, one of the front runners that I've heard, you know, mm. them, uh, Oxford University and and China. I think, you know, Moderna, for instance, was given special dispensation to uh, go to the third stage in parallel because of, you know, Operation Time Warp that the US is running. So, you know, some of the, usual processes and standards that you started off our conversation yeah. about medicine yeah. is very, very good to have that and should have that. Some of those things are not in place in this case because of the economic imperative to get something out. Exactly. And so what I think <coughs> we'll probably see is that, um,
1: you know, let's say the vaccine's approved Christmas time. Let's say it starts arriving in Australia, you know, maybe first quarter, second quarter, March, April. Mm-hmm. I think what we'll probably see is once the vaccine's, I guess, been available for a certain amount of time, I think the governments will be under enormous pressure to reduce the restrictions. So I think a lot of the travel restrictions uh, and other social restrictions that we've had will will relatively quickly disappear because if I put my hand up and get the vaccine, um, you know, I'm going to be pretty upset if uh, these restrictions are in place just because other people choose not to get the vaccine. So I think the restrictions will... Um, be relieved relatively quickly after the vaccines launched, you know, maybe for travel, you need might need to give proof that you've had a vaccine, for example, but I think, this you know, interesting. international travel yeah. will, will open up. Your going to have a stamp on it with a V. You know, yeah, that's, you know, uh, that's probably my best guess, right? There's obviously lots of uncertainty sure. there, but I think, um, this is the way I see it right now. But in terms of people getting the vaccine, I think it's going to be quite a protracted process. Um, so I think for the exact reasons that we've spoken about, I think a lot of people will be hesitant and you've got to remember that this, uh, virus for younger people is not very deadly, right? Now it's, it's relatively deadly for older people and it's extremely infectious. And so, you know, I think the government in Australia has done the right decision in terms of containing the spread. But if you're age 40 or below, you have less than a one in 10,000 chance of dying if you get the virus, right? Mm -hmm. And of those one in 10,000 people, most of those are going to be people with pre-existing conditions. So if you're under 40 and you're weighing out, you know, the chances, well, okay. Live my life or
0: cocoon myself.
1: uh, Or um, risk getting this um, illness or taking a vaccine, which has um, relatively little data in terms of long-term follow-up, you know, you could argue it's actually a rational choice for a lot of younger people to go, you know what? I'm just probably going to get the, the, the uh, illness itself. So my guess is that the uptake of the vaccine is actually relatively slow. And, you know, what that might impact, <clears throat> the impact of that in Australia, where immunity is extremely low because I've had very few cases relative to the rest of the world, is that, you know, we might actually see the coronavirus cases go up, right? And so whilst there won't be any restrictions in place, I think consumer behaviour is going to be impacted. So if you're old or if you've got, medical conditions,
0: um, you You'll might be taking it, uh, personally, no, no, no. will th- oh. th- those people who have medical conditions and are older. Sure. Sure. That I think they'll probably,
1: well, hopefully get the vaccine early, but they might have, you know, hesitations about the vaccine as well. So they might, you know, just choose to stay at home or not participate. And the other variable is, um, you know, we don't really know how effective the vaccine is, right? So let's say it's 80% effective, which is probably not a bad outcome for, mm-hmm. from at a population level. But if you're a person who's really worried about the virus, um, and even if you get the vaccine, you, you know, and you hear it's eighty percent effective, you still might be quite hesitant to go out and you know get up about your normal day-to-day activities and participate in the economy in Australia um, when you know it's only eighty percent effective, and the cases in Australia might go up. So, I think yes, reopening probably relatively, let's say, first quarter, second quarter next year. But um, I think full economic activity in Australia, I think is very unlikely to rebound back to normal until until, uh, 2022. That's quite some time
0: off. I know. Mm. So, you know, in terms of the markets, um, you know, the... Who who benefits from, and and what's the economics of those vaccines? Uh, Is someone like CSL a big winner out of that development in in terms of distribution, production, or otherwise, or, or... Are there other organisations that are set to do very well out of this? We don't see a lot of opportunities in the short term. Um,
1: We think that, um, you know, there'll be, you know, likely several vaccines available. Uh, Whoever are successful, you know, they might make um, a relatively small economic profit. Most of these players who have received funding from the US have have stated that they'll...
0: um, Yeah, a lot of the big farmers committed to do it at cost, right?
1: That's right. So, um, and trying to pick a winner early, I think it's difficult. Uh, I think long-term, there will be some winners. So whoever makes the best vaccine and assuming that vaccine is given regularly, then that could be, you know, commercially lucrative. But, you know, with the data that we have right now and given how many players there are out there, you know, making a call on that at this stage is, is pretty hard.
0: The ethics of pricing... Uh, a vaccine like this. It, it's kind of fascinating to me. And, you know, I think back, uh, you know, I did an economics degree and I loved economic history and I, I love little puzzles like uh, Adam Smith's water do- water, diamonds paradox, that something so useful as water was almost worthless by price and a diamond, which was relatively useless, was so expensive. Um, it seems to apply to vaccines where you know, people will complain if they're more than twenty, thirty dollars. I think Moderna was getting a little bit of grief that they were putting a markup of ten bucks on a twenty buck vaccine. But it would seem if you had a vaccine that worked, um, I think I know a lot of people who would pay uh, a lot more than ten or thirty or forty dollars. Um, do you ever get drawn into or faced with ethical decisions or the ethics of capitalism? Alongside tr- solving a public health issue and healthcare,
1: uh, you will see a lot of that. I think uh, <clears throat> you know, health and profit is sort of odd bedfellows, especially in this part of the world where we used to f- um, government-funded healthcare for everyone. Um, but um, you know, incentives need to be in place. I think to give companies, um, uh, I guess, the, the incentive to invest and to make products in the first place. So, you know, I think um, it's a balance which, um, yeah, is is essential really and needs to happen. Um, in terms of the vaccine though, you, you know, you touch on a couple of interesting points. One is that vaccines historically are, are relatively low priced. So these prices you talk about, um, you know, they're very low. Whilst, you know, 25 million people in Australia will get this vaccine. So at a macro level, let's assume it's a $30 vaccine, that's something like $75 million, excuse me, $750 million. So that sounds relatively attractive. Uh, and in terms of the relative pricing, it's still extremely low. A COVID test in Australia right now is reimbursed at $100. So a single test is going to be probably you know double or triple the, 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 the price of, of one dose of the vaccine. So... Yeah, vaccines historically have been low priced and a little bit like water in your Adam Smith analogy. Uh, It doesn't make a lot of logical sense. Um, And the other thing about vaccines, which makes them relatively um, unattractive economically, is that good vaccines, you only have to give a few times ever. Whereas, you know,
0: a medicine you might take, you know, daily for the rest of your life. Statin or something like that. That's right. And you've got 20 years of IP until you have to turn it over. And that's the, the sort of MO of big pharma, right? That's right. That's right. So I think, you know, that's another reason we're not directly
1: playing the vaccines in, in terms of this pandemic. But there are other sectors which are positively impacted and, uh, within healthcare um, and others which are negatively impacted. And then we're certainly
0: playing those dynamics. Terrific. Craig, thank you very much. It's been fascinating. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks for joining us in Inside the Rope. No problem, David. Thank you. Cheers. Thank you for listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with David by visiting codacapital.com.